World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Movie lovers in China know that fickle government censors are hacking away at imported films. So many turn to pirate sites, where movies are subtitled by armies of volunteers. But now authorities are cracking down on the sites and the subtitlers. And researchers understand that dreams play an important role in how people form lasting memories. But that is about all they understand. Problem is, they can't ask someone who's dreaming what's going on. Until now. First up, though. In Turkey today, the trial is resuming of 26 people accused of involvement in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. In London, one of Mr. Khashoggi's friends who's been in touch with his fiancée says they're trying to stay positive in spite of the grim rumours. It's more than two years since the veteran Saudi journalist was suffocated in his country's consulate in Istanbul, his body sawn into pieces by a squad of assassins flown in on private jets. After a fortnight of denials, Saudi Arabia has admitted that the missing journalist Jamal Khashoggi died during his visit to the country's consulate in Istanbul. The trial will be of little consequence. None of the suspects is in Turkish custody. And it poses little threat to Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's crown prince and de facto ruler, who many believe to be ultimately responsible. America's reaction to the grisly murder is a window into how the country thinks about dealing with its historical ally, and the power dynamics in a region riven by religious divides and proxy wars. The Trump administration held back a report on Mr. Khashoggi's murder, a report that the Biden administration published last week, concluding that the crown prince approved the operation. Despite imposing sanctions on some Saudis, Mr. Biden didn't impose any on Prince Mohammed. America's president now must figure out how to navigate the country's relationship with Saudi Arabia and with the region as a whole. Joe Biden has been pretty clear about what he thinks of Saudi Arabia. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. During the presidential campaign, he called its government a pariah. And make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the, in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. One of his first acts as president was to end American support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen, which he called a humanitarian strategic catastrophe. Then you had the administration's release of an intelligence report that said Prince Mohammed ordered the operation that resulted in Jamal Khashoggi's death. But, you know, that was interesting because Biden stopped short of, of punishing Prince Mohammed directly. He, he seemed to conclude that the diplomatic cost of that would be too high. So as much as Biden may think the prince is, is a monster, he also knows that he's in charge of one of America's most important allies 
in the region. I think you should look at the administration's language and what they say is they want to, quote unquote, recalibrate relations with Saudi Arabia, not destroy them. But what does that recalibration look like in practice? Well, look back at the Trump administration. Donald Trump was quite cozy with Prince Mohammed. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, had a texting relationship with him. And in general, that administration gave the Saudi government a blank check to be aggressive in the region and to crush dissent at home. Now, that's changing under Biden. And it seems to be indicative of his view of the region as a whole. He really wants to make Saudi Arabia and the Middle East more generally less of a priority for America, which is reasonable. America has thousands of soldiers spread across the Middle East, yet its interventions in the region over the past two decades have hardly produced the desired results. You have lots of people in Washington who think it should be devoting more resources to countering China at the expense of the Middle East. But that's all easier said than done. America's last two presidents also wanted to pull back from the Middle East, but they kept getting sucked into the region by events like the Arab Spring, by groups like Islamic State, by countries like Iran. So I think the question facing Joe Biden is, can he step back while still protecting America's interests in the Middle East? And at this stage, what are America's interests in the region? They're not what they used to be. Uh, for decades, two of the most important interests were protecting the flow of Gulf oil and ensuring the survival of Israel. But today, America imports more oil from Mexico than it does from Saudi Arabia. And Israel's survival isn't really in doubt anymore. I mean, it has the strongest army in the region, and it's made friends with many of the Arab states around it. But look, this isn't to say that America doesn't have any reason to be in the Middle East. Terrorism is still a big concern. Jihadist groups like Islamic State and al-Qaeda have been suppressed, but they're still quite active, and they're still looking to attack the West. And nuclear proliferation is another concern that's going to keep America in the region. America is obviously worried about Iran, but it really goes beyond that. If Iran gets a bomb or if it seeks a bomb, really, it risks setting off a, a nuclear arms race, which would obviously add a, a whole new layer of danger to a region that's already on edge. So given that the interests have changed, but the, the dangers haven't disappeared, what, what is the goal for America at, at this point, do you think? Broadly speaking, what America wants is stability. But it's pursued it with these wild swings of policy, sort of oscillating between war and retreat. What I think Biden wants to do, having spoken to some of his advisors, is come up with a more pragmatic and sustainable approach. That's likely to disappoint some in the short term, as it probably means leaving American troops in place to do things like continue battling terrorist groups and also to make sure that America's soft power is more effective. And I think you saw that reflected in America's airstrike on Iranian-backed militias in Syria last month. Now, that was retaliation for an attack on Americans in Iraq. And we actually saw another missile attack on American troops in Iraq yesterday. So it's not quite clear how effective that was. But America's actions are also a signal to Iran that Joe Biden isn't going to just roll over in negotiations to revive the Iranian nuclear deal. So in a sense, the, the short-term game is, is very much the, the status quo. Well, what about the longer term? In the longer term, America needs to stop doing things that create instability in the region, such as sending billions of dollars worth of arms to the region's autocrats. That doesn't help matters, and it, it certainly doesn't help the region's people who are suffering from poor governance and abusive regimes, which you could argue in turn fosters the type of extremism that uh, America is battling. Rand, a think tank, recently noted that America devotes 
roughly an equivalent share of aid to Egypt's military as it does to economic support for the entire Middle East. Now, that's pretty incredible. But this goes beyond arms sales. In the longer term, I think this administration wants the region to take more responsibility for itself. And it wants to help it do that by really enhancing its capacity for diplomacy, sort of upgrading the region's diplomatic machinery. And the recent deals between Israel and several Arab states makes for a good start. It sort of lays the groundwork for that. But I I actually think Biden is going to be even more ambitious in this area. Now, none of this is is going to be easy, but I don't think Joe Biden or his advisors uh, on the Middle East are under any illusions that it will be. But we've we've heard this from a number of of incoming American administrations who would like to to build a diplomatic framework and then slowly make for the door. Do do you think with Mr. Biden's leverage that will actually happen this time? Well, I think an argument could be made that he has more to work with than his predecessors. But this is the Middle East. I mean, it's constantly throwing up surprises. And even the best strategy tends to bump up against the harsh reality of the region. I mean, when Barack Obama tried to withdraw from Iraq, he found himself dealing with the Islamic State. Donald Trump thought he could force regime change in Iran only to find himself on the brink of war with the country. Joe Biden needs to be ready to deal with new problems as they arise and to adapt his plans as needed. Roger, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. China has one of the world's fastest growing film markets, but it's hardly a cinema lover's paradise. The ruling Communist Party only approves a few foreign films for screening each year, and they're often heavily censored. Western TV shows also rarely make it across China's Great Firewall unaltered. Citizens looking to catch the latest Hollywood blockbuster or TV box set have long turned to piracy and unofficial user-made subtitles. But the end is nigh for the online translation groups making bootleg content accessible to millions. In early February, 14 people from China's largest streaming firm, Renuyingshi, were arrested in Shanghai for alleged copyright infringements. Su Lin Wang is The Economist's China correspondent. Renuyingshi has, over the years, produced more than 20,000 television shows for its 8 million registered users. So it was very, very big news in China. That is a lot of television shows and quite a lot of people watching. How do they serve that many users? China has a very strict censorship regime and there are a lot of foreign films and TV shows that are inaccessible through official channels in China. But that hasn't stopped millions of young Chinese growing up watching uncensored TV shows and movies from the West because of volunteer subtitling enthusiasts who would find ways to download top American TV shows, subtitle them in Chinese, and then upload them mostly for free onto the internet in China. So why is there a need for these translation groups in the first place? 
There's no Netflix in China. The only other places in the world that don't have Netflix are North Korea, Syria, and Crimea. There are a lot of restrictions in terms of what can be portrayed on Chinese television. So, for example, there are guidelines that say if there is a character who has an affair, the affair has to end badly. It's possible to access some movies and TV shows from the West in China on Chinese state television or in cinemas. The issue is that they're often highly censored. So, for example, Game of Thrones is available in China, but a lot of fans complain that so much of the sex and violence and nudity has been cut from it that it's impossible to follow the plot. Another complaint is a lot of the subtitles are inaccurate, so it's very hard to follow the storyline if you're going to rely on these official channels. So is the issue here a violation of copyright or the fact that the censorship machinery doesn't have a firm enough hold here? Well, it's both. So I think from a macro perspective, if there was no censorship in China, then people would have access to all these uncensored foreign films and TV shows. But because they don't, they have to find other ways through the grey market to access these shows. And there was a lot of disappointment when the arrests occurred earlier this month because people felt like they were willing to pay for these shows. It's just there wasn't the option to do so because of China's censorship regime. But what about the risks for the translators themselves now that this crackdown is happening? So interestingly, as far as we can tell from the official police reports, the 14 people arrested at Shi, they weren't the translators, they weren't the volunteers. They were people who were employed and paid to run the servers and run the office and run what was quite a large operation. That having been said... A lot of people are now far more cautious about being openly affiliated with volunteer subtitling groups. We spoke to a translator who we haven't named to protect their identity about their motivations for being a subtitling enthusiast. I'm in charge of a translating group named Yuan Jian. My parents, my friends, they may not understand English. So to make things convenient for them, I began to search for ways to like translate these English dialogues into Chinese so they can understand. It was a tragedy to Chinese subtitling group. Shi was the largest and the most influential subtitling group in China. So it was a very tragic thing. It's not the end. I would say it is a new beginning because now those groups who are still here, they need to find ways to be safer. And as public, we do have to look for more ways to find resources to watch those uncensored films. And what about on the sort of consumer end of this? What's the reaction been from viewers of these foreign shows? There was an outpouring of grief, in a way, on Chinese social media after the arrests, with a lot of people reflecting on how important and impactful these uncensored TV shows have been. A lot of people were saying, with nostalgia, goodbye to their youth and paying tribute to the shows that most impacted them growing up. There was a lot of debate on Weibo, which is a popular Chinese social media platform, referring to the clampdown. And the hashtags related to that have received more than a billion views so far. One very prominent academic of Chinese literature said that this subtitling effort had been one of Chinese history's great translation projects, 
on par with the drive to render Western literature into Chinese in the 19th century. Almost talking about this translation effort in the past tense. I mean, is that where this is headed? Is, is this industry just going to get sort of snuffed out altogether, do you think? It's really hard to know. And I think people are very, very resourceful in China, particularly in terms of trying to get around censorship and get access to the information they want access to. So it's possible that some groups will survive and, and we'll continue to see some subtitling efforts. But I think this has been a massive blow to the cottage industry in general. While there were a lot of hit shows and movies that were translated and they're the most popular types of content, there was a lot of content that catered to niche audiences as well, like the NBC Nightly News used to be translated. One relatively large subtitling group focuses on translating shows that have prominent LGBTQ characters. And there have been young Chinese who have said that watching these subtitled American TV shows have really helped them come to grips with their sexuality. And I think what we're going to see is that the content that caters to a smaller audience will likely disappear. Thanks very much for your time, Sulin. Thanks very much, Jason. For lots more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. How often do you wake up and know that you were having a dream, but can't quite remember what it was about? Dreaming remains one of the least understood parts of the human condition. And while researchers continue to study it, one big barrier has been the inability to communicate with those in the dream world. But now, that could be changing. Understanding what people are dreaming matters a great deal because memory consolidation is taking place while we are dreaming. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. Researchers have long speculated that if we could understand what's going on in the dreams, that might help us to understand the mechanisms of memory. So this led Dr. Ken Poller at Northwestern University, he's a neuroscientist, to speculate that it might be possible to communicate with people who were actively dreaming and get them to answer if he used the right techniques. What are the right techniques then? So he theorized that a possibility might be to target what's called lucid dreaming. Now, lucid dreaming takes place during REM sleep, uh, rapid eye movement sleep. Because he knew lucid dreaming was the state where people were vaguely aware of what was going on, he thought he might be able to initiate contact with them. So how did he go about trying to establish contact then? Dr. Peller worked with 35 volunteers based in the U.S., France, Germany, and the Netherlands. All of these folks were trained to be mindful of their mental state. They engaged in exercises that led them to reflect upon whether or not they might be dreaming so that when they actually did enter a lucid dreaming state, they might be more likely to be aware of it. If they did detect that, the volunteers had been trained to send a signal back to the researchers in the real world. So the researchers established contact then with the dream world. What did they then talk about? Dr. Pollard really just wanted to know if people could answer basic questions. Almost all of the questions were arithmetic-based. What is two plus four? And then the person was trained to use their eyes to make six very identifiable eye movements, left and right. And so the researchers could then identify that not only was this person aware that they were lucid dreaming, 
but that they could hear the questions being asked and then give a right answer. What was really interesting was that the researchers interviewed everybody shortly after they had their lucid dreaming state. Whenever a series of questions were answered, the researchers promptly woke people up to interview them about what they were dreaming. And they found that the questions were almost always interpreted in the state of the dream. If a person had been dreaming about a party where there was a radio, then the voice of the researchers played through the radio in the dream state. When the researchers asked the dreamers about the questions that they had been given, the dreamers would sometimes report a different question from the one that the researchers had given them, which goes hand in hand with what we already suspected, which is that after we wake up, our brains begin to warp the things that occurred while we were in the dreamlike state, which makes it all the more important that we actually develop a mechanism for speaking to people while they're actually dreaming and not interviewing them when they wake up. And it seems that there is now an established mechanism to probe dreams and dreamers in that way. Yeah. So while this was not terribly consistent, the researchers were only able to get responses from about a quarter of the people who were in the dreamlike state. And those who responded only answered questions correctly half the time. It still proves a point, And that is that you can now speak to people who are dreaming. And for the folks who are trying to understand what is actually happening during the dreamlike state and how that shapes how we remember things and also deals with people who suffer from chronic nightmares and such, there is now the opportunity for researchers to communicate directly with folks in this condition. So there's a lot of potential here to look at memory processing and sleep and dreams. So very exciting. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jason. And sweet dreams. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.